Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctor is In podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, president and founder of Dr. Greenhouse. Today's interview is part of our special series, What Plants Crave, from science, technology, engineering, and math, and all of the above, where I'm interviewing equipment providers, engineers, and design professionals about the unique technological and building needs for growing crops indoors and in greenhouses. My guest today is Brian Anderson, co-founder and CEO of Anderson Porter Design, an architecture firm based out of Boston that has carved out a very special niche for cannabis facility design. If you don't recognize Brian's name, you've probably seen him around at a conference or event with his signature strawberry blonde beard and fedora hat. Brian's firm has designed many cannabis retail stores, cultivation operations, and manufacturing facilities all over the country, bringing a systematic approach to the planning and design process that I find is often missing from this industry. Uh, Brian is passionate about environmentally responsible building design and has worked with such organizations as the NCIA, the Resource Innovation Institute, and even ASTM to develop data-driven standards and best practices that help make cannabis businesses more profitable and honestly, the industry more successful and sustainable overall. I, I think we, we share that, definitely that value together. Brian, it's so great to have you on the What Plants Crave podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you about architectural design and planning for the cannabis industry and, and other CEA facilities. So, so welcome. Awesome. Thank you, Nadia. Very happy to be here. So let's, let's start with how did you first get interested or involved in cannabis facility design? Do you know the term uh, luck is the intersection of preparedness and opportunity? Yeah. So I had a career as an architect for 20 years uh, prior to meeting my first cannabis would-be cannabis customer. And it was that practice, it was that experience as a general practitioner in architecture that brought me. So I started my career doing retail stores across Canada for Levi Strauss and other international brands. So I knew retail. Uh, I had done, I'm in Eastern Massachusetts, right? Boston, Cambridge area every suburban office park is filled with medical device manufacturing or some sort of high tech because Harvard MIT, right? They just spew out these like in the, like in, like in the Bay area, right? Just like all of those tech companies, very similar here in this environment. And so I did my fair share of clean rooms, ISO seven, ISO eight clean rooms, positive pressure, negative pressure, cut my customers routinely wear hair nets and beard nets and put on booties, swing their feet from the dirty side, from the clean side to the dirty side. So GMP was a familiar practice for me, not a new acronym that I needed to learn. We had security in our background. We worked with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston during 9-11. So, you know, you can imagine one federal organization who had a deep, deep, deep passion for security post 9-11. And we were- I love that there was a siren in the background right now. Yeah, there's sirens in the background. <laughs> Perfect timing on cue. We had security, we had GMP, we had, uh, we had retail. Plant science, I learned from Dr. Nadi Sabe, attending your seminar in Boston, what was that, 2018 maybe? Um, 2019, I think. 2019? Yeah. Um, but I learned it as well from phenomenal. So 2014, um, we got interviewed and, you know, 
like many architects are, you know, put on a short list and interviewed and, and came away the, you know, the winning firm. And I haven't looked back. I, I found my people. I really, it reinvigorated my practice of architecture. It reinvigorated my passion. And there's just so many amazing stories of, of how cannabis changes people's lives and how I, as an architect, find professional, deep professional satisfaction in bringing information to customers that really need it, right? I'm not just a commodity. People you know, mm. don't, right? Architects in many, many, many industries are a commodity. You can find 15 that do the same thing. Yeah. And you just select on price. So we found an opportunity here where people, have, you know, never, never even worked with an architect before. Don't know what the profession is. A lot of legacy folks have put their life and their passion into this, into this plant. And yet, you know, didn't get an MBA, didn't go out and get a, you know, learn about botany, didn't have a four-year degree in horticulture, right? So they bring that knowledge together. We feel proud to be able to support that knowledge. And through standards, you mentioned ASTM and, you know, NCIA stuff that Derek is doing with RII, that's Derek Smith with Resource Innovation Institute, best practices um, to support, you know, the legacy folks and, and repeat customers. So folks who have been out there and worked already hard, maybe with a facility and are now looking either to merge and acquire or to grow and expand and have learned the hard way, right? <laughs> what did, what didn't work. That's sort of, you know, what, what gets me up in the morning. It, yeah, I it's love that. And, and that's, that's, you know, the story of you creating this niche uh, in an industry that, like you were saying, hasn't necessarily had to hire an architect or include and incorporate sound architectural design or even do it in, in a, a, a way that complies with building codes. Right. And right. now we're in here in California. Now we're dealing with energy codes. Um, and yes. I know there's energy regulations in other places as well. But it's a specialty that that you and, and I bring to this industry because the same is true. Right. Contractors, mechanical engineers, sort of a dime a dozen. But finding someone, you know, an architect like yourself or an engineer like us who really takes the time to understand what growers are trying to accomplish and what plants need from our designs is is more unique and hard to come by. Um, on that note, I want to ask you, I mean, I just want to start really basic. Yeah. Why do cannabis projects or developers or growers or whatever, why do they need you? Why do they need an architect in the first place? Good question, right? So first of all, one reason is the building code. So these are factories. These are moderate hazard factories by definition. A grow facility is a, is a, is a factory moderate hazard. That's the building classification from the ICC, the International Code Conference. At, that's the state level, right? And municipal level. There's a local building inspector and they're concerned with life safety, not plant safety. So the architect, and so many architects practice in cannabis without knowing a thing about the plant, right? I will make sure that you have the right exit doors. I'll make sure they're the right width. I'll make sure that the place won't burn. We'll get an engineer. We'll do sprinklers. Everything else, that's on you. Like, don't talk to me. It's just like, you know, plugging the ears and going, blah, 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 right? That, so there's lots of opportunity to find very competent, good architects in that space. However, there's so many more aspects that architecture affects in plant health and plant growth. So happy plants are, is a good business, right? 
and airflow and air and, and all of those pieces have to do with air sealing in tight environments. So that's the room design. So what is what is a properly built grow room? Many architects just will do the shell for the customer and and not worry about the room inside. Hmm. Well, so that room and its and its tightness is fundamental to air control, air movement, proper v, VPD, RH, maintaining all of your interior set points are really hard to do if you're growing in a plastic tent, right? So you don't grow in plastic tents. You grow, so, or in a greenhouse, you wanna make sure that, that the environmental controls are, can be maintained. Big differences between greenhouse and, and warehouse grows. So architects affect not only the superstructure, the, the, the piece that the local and state building authorities have jurisdiction over, but we, if you find an architect who knows plant health and who understands the interaction between building systems and process systems and the flow of operations, then you can improve the business by shortening the number of steps that a that a crew have to go through. Well, that's, that's planning and organization and that's an architect's world. Selection of materials, so specifiers. Architects are specifiers for building materials. So if you know that you're using certain chemicals and you don't want them to peel your floor finishes up, then we want to specify the right floor finishes the first time. Or let's talk about C1D1 if you're extracting, right? What areas, in fact, are C1D1? Is it a is it a HAL booth? Well, they went out of business. So maybe it's a Podtronics booth, uh, it, right? Are there LabConco booths? How do you coordinate the power needed for that? Right. So architects typically in industry coordinate the work of the mechanical electrical plumbing trades. So we, we bundle that, we provide coordination. We're not engineers, we're not purporting to be, but we help to facilitate the communication of the process systems, what, you know, horticulture or manufacturing, and not necessarily translate that. I mean, we have engineers now who, like yourself, are completely immersed in this. We don't tend to work with novice engineers either, right? Or new engineers to this industry. So we often are a quarterback in, in coordinating room design and environment and overall facility and flow of that facility. We often quarterback with uh, more, also some you know rather mundane things like making sure that the security vendor is layered in and that the doors have the right security hardware on them. When that's and then, for example, we work with equipment uh, suppliers who will buy and warehouse and deliver just-in-time delivery, if you're familiar with that term, to have things delivered so they don't get driven over by forklifts mistakenly and forgotten to be opened up. And right, we can co we're coordinators of all those various subtrades. And that's a in in industry, in hospital design, and in, in in secondary schools and university design buildings. That's the role of the architect is that sort of quarterback amongst all host of specialty trades people, specialty design people. So that's where that's where we thrive because that was our experience prior to coming to cannabis is yeah. and that saves customers time and money ultimately. Well, it helps us too as one of the trades, right? As as mm -hmm. one of the team members, uh, one of the engineers um, working for the client. Uh, and I would say, from my own experience, you know, I'm really glad you talked about coordination and sort of the project management side um, of of these projects because 
you know, I came from previously before starting Dr. Greenhouse, I was working as a mechanical engineer for, for seven years on, you know, commercial institutional projects. And I learned that the architect is sort of the go-to, right? Like they're the one who coordinates the calls, who coordinates the team, who coordinates the drawings, who coordinates the building department, who, do, you know, who, who even communicates to the client. I will say one thing that I like about my position now is that I have a direct um, connection and communication, line of communication with the client. Um, the architect isn't in my way anymore. Um, but other than, and, and I only say that, and I don't mean that in a necessarily negative to architects. It's just that architects can't always convey, they don't always understand or have the ability to convey exactly what we're trying to do. And so sometimes it can just expedite that process and help us, right, just have, so, having a direct line to talk directly to the client or the grower in this case about what we're trying to do. So we give don't, you an ex yeah. example of that. I'll give you an example of that. So there's a thing in, in AEC industries called programming. And programming is often a nebulous thing. Like maybe some developers will hire specialty teams just to do programming. And then once mm -hmm. the program has been developed, that developer will go out and bid the job to architects and engineers, et cetera. We, Anderson Porter Design, help our engineers every time we work with an engineering team by bringing them in, helping to form the questionnaire. How do we pull from this customer exactly what we as a team need to know? So we're collaborative in that approach. We work with Jim Megerson, we work with you, we work with you know great engineers who know the plant to develop a set of questions to the customer to say, what's your grow methodology? How do you yeah. grow? Are you single tier, are you two tier, are you HPS, are you, uh, are you LED? Are you growing in cocoa core? Are you growing in, in organic living soils? All of these things lead, do you like, you know, one plant per square foot? Do you want nine square feet per plant? You know, what are, <laughs> yeah. you, what are you doing? Those questions, when written down, form what's called the conditions of satisfaction or the basis of design. There's a number of different terms. Yeah. Right? We've talked about this before. Once you develop that, that and write it down, we then, all as these various design professionals can, we have one single point. If it's going to change, we acknowledge the customer says, no, nope, we're going to change that. We've all been through it, but at least we have a paper trail. We have a way to say, okay, this is what we're doing. Let's, and now from an engineering perspective, you can help design, you know, understand that's genetic strain, what they're growing, what the transpiration rate is, what the PPFD needs to be, what the daily light index needs to be. Are they growing in, you know, 12 on, 12 off with two rooms, or are they growing both rooms on for 12 hours and both off? All of those affect energy consumption and they affect building design. And so programming is one of those ways in which, I mean, you said it, yes, architects can often be in the way of all of the various specialty disciplines if they're not collaborative and if there's no established program. So we help to establish mm. that program because programming in cannabis is completely unheard of, let alone architects. I, tell me about it. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you guys do that. I mean, why do you do that and others don't? I don't know that you can speak to why others don't, but I mean, why are you so unique in this industry? <laughs> I care. <laughs> I, <laughs> Fair enough. I care about my customers. I really do. Uh, there is nobody I can't work with. I would love to work with everybody, but it is expensive. Yeah. And so the to hire an architect fundamentally is expensive. 
And that weeds out a lot of legacy growers who are not funded. You know the world of today and yeah. it's been the same, right? You can't get funding from a bank. And so uh, how do we make this work? Different states are intervening with legislation for the state of New York in their, in their mm-hmm. social equity program. Alabama just announced their licenses. I don't know if you're following that. There's nine licenses now live in Alabama as of two days ago. Uh, we're on one of those teams. Yay. Yay. Um, and they went to social equity applicant, the four vertical licenses, the you know 25% of the cannabis uh, cultivation licenses. So nice. states intervene to help, but fundamentally it's still expensive. All right. So that's, it's not easy as an architect. It is not easy. I can make a lot more money working in you know, just straight up retail, quick serve, you know, doing McDonald's restaurants or just working right. with the university. The cookie cutters. That stuff pays much better than, than, than cannabis does. So it, 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 why do we do this? Because I, I said it earlier, I feel good about providing services that people don't otherwise have access to. Mm-hmm. And it's my burden to prove the value proposition. If I can't prove the value proposition, no one's going to spend the money. Yeah. But I yeah. have... Uh, proven the value proposition to enough customers that I'm building, I'm building some momentum. And by value proposition, I mean, is it worth spending this kind of money? Right. Yeah. Talk to plenty of operators who have spent twice what I would ever charge three times what I would ever charge in mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm selling something that's invisible. That's always been the burden of architects. We sell the invisible. Yeah. It isn't real until we make it. And we have to pretend what it's going to be and what it's going to cost to justify. Right? So there's there's some craft in there and it's difficult, but we've done it enough times now that we've been to the end zone and we can effectively talk to our customers about what the how to avoid the falling boulders, how to how, yeah. right, how to do that. And yeah, it's not cheap, it's expensive, but so are engineers and so are, you know, court process engineers and fire protection engineers and the whole list of civil engineers and land use attorneys, right? These are the costs of doing business. And the industry's growing up. The industry's coming along, right? It's yeah. consumer products, goods industry. Ultimately, this is all about consumer product goods and consumer demand. We're just in many states, we're out ahead of that because no one, no one's done the polling. No one's asked people how much, how much THC do you want in your, in your pre-roll? People don't know. They just buy 30% because Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's more. More is better. More. So until this until we get those kinds of data, yeah. About consumer product goods, what type of drink do you like? Is it, you know, is it infused soda water? Is it infused juices? What you know how much CBD, how much THC? Once we start to collect that kind of that was in MJ Biz Daily actually yesterday. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. It says gee, could businesses be better if they were talking to their customers? Holy shit. Are you serious? (laughs) The international retailer, it's all about customer polling. They will rebuild stores. Most retailers internationally will rebuild a store. They'll tear it down and rebuild it just to put in a different kiosk system to change their prototypes every five years. They'll tear their stores down and build them anew. That's the consumer products good industry, right? Cannabis is yet to achieve that status and that maturity. Right, right. But we're on the way. We're on the way. And I didn't want to disparage working with architects because really what I wanted to say is that I enjoy working with architects such as yourself who are involved in the design, who set up regular meetings, who are facilitating the communication and coordination with the entire team and are good communicators with the client as well 
um, in terms of why we're doing what we're doing and why, you know, building codes are important and having a building permit is, you know, the legal way to go. Um, and, and even on those building materials, you know, I know that we have some ideas in terms of building materials for our own systems, right? A lot of metal and, and fabric that, that we are considering on the HVAC side. And I know that, you know, architects are always curious to hear our thoughts on, on that. The good architects are, um, oh, you know, why stainless steel and not galvanized steel? Oh, why, oh why, you know. Why, glass, why, why Lexan and not glass? Yeah. I mean, has, and, exactly. and in Michigan, the Bureau of Fire Safety has a lot to say about that. Mm. And if you designate it wrong and can't talk to the building, yeah. to the fire marshal, suddenly your permit's being held up for three, four, five months. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know why. Yeah. You know, you, you listed off a great litany of um, basis of design data points, right? Yeah. Yeah. Conditions of satisfaction. When you first got into this industry, I I imagine you didn't have that list ready to go. How did you learn what was important to growers to now be able to ask those questions? Like what, what was your learning curve like? Yeah. So I, one thing that I came to about 15 years ago, so maybe 10 years prior to coming to cannabis or eight, six years prior to coming to cannabis, been doing this 10 years now, was the Lean Construction Institute. So applying, think of the Toyota way, think of lean manufacturing just in time, applying that to the AE and C industry. So I had spent quite a bit of my career uh, in the, with LCI, the Lean Construction Institute, looking at how to improve systems. And one of the things is always to focus on the customer. What does the customer need? What does the customer want? And that is fundamentally what programming is about, right? Learn it, ask it, write it down. That becomes the basis of design. So again, opportunity, right? And luck. I had these things in my tool belt where I knew to ask and write down. If you know, if I don't know the answer, right? I'm going to build a good team around me. I'm going to ask the right questions. So then the process was one of the tools on my belt. Then it was meeting folks like, you, meeting folks like Mike Zartarian, meeting folks like Tom Halfley, meeting folks like Jim Magerson, meeting folks who were court process engineers, systems engineers, uh, had grown up growing, right? Many of the, many have a degree in Hort and Botany, but no, also electrical engineer. There's been some really phenomenal folks from whom I've learned. And so I learned things about Hort narratives, right? How does one narrative, Brian Staffa is starting to push out really interesting information on his uh, LinkedIn page. I learned from folks who have gone before me, and then I, I layer that into this process, right? It's, if there's a process that I know that works, a proven process that works in any industry, I can now layer in the right professionals, and I can help guide that and manage that in a way that it's, it seems mysterious, but it can actually s- save tons of money with really fundamentally simple things that I do prior to becoming a cannabis architect, just things that architects do. Um, so for example, procurement. If I know that, that switch gear and, mechan- and mechanical systems are gonna be the longest lead items, right? Up to a year if this past, you know, we just did a job in Mississippi and, the, and, and we were getting reports back of 60 months for switch gear. Okay, well, how do you solve that problem, right? 60 months to get switch gear or, you know, 42 weeks, no, 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 not months, weeks, 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 weeks. So a year. Okay, it was so, like five years. Oh no, 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 God. sorry. 
weeks done, yes, 60 weeks or 40 weeks for some of the, you know, mechanical equipment. What I knew how to do already was to, to bring in the right people, right? You've heard of uh, design assist, right? So you bring in the actual trades and you, and you talk about it. You say, look, it's not going to save us any money to bid this out to three different vendors. Let's pick the right vendor and let's make them part of the team. But that's something I learned how to do prior to coming to cannabis. And I simply see the pattern ha- rehappening, which is, okay, we have extreme procurement problems in certain areas. Let's make that a design assist piece because there's no win to the, to the, to the owner to wait until the drawing, drawings are all done to go out to bid on that trade. It just doesn't make any sense. So, or you base it on kilowatt hours. What is the cost per kilowatt hour of energy in your, in your particular area? Or what's the climate zone? Okay, that's gonna help shape what the right set of vendors are gonna be right on that system. Yes, there's an ideal, but that ideal might not work in the time frame that the customer has, right? So we have to adapt. And those are things that I learned how to do in other industries, how to bop and weave and adapt. I have two questions I wanna ask you and I don't know which direction to go. Um, let's start with this. Can you define, because the, these terminologies are pretty common in AEC, architecture, engineering, construction, for our friends who don't know that acronym. But it's, you know, like you were saying, like we were talking about like this architecture thing and engineering thing is kind of new to the industry, but we use these terms. Some of us use these terms. And what do they mean? Design assist, design build, and design bid build. What, What is that? And I've what lost, are the, maybe yeah. the pros and cons between those? And which do you see the most often in Canada? So full disclosure, I've lost a customer because they thought I was being smug using terms that they didn't understand. See, there hurt. we go. Yeah. yeah. That, hurt. that hurt. They thought I was, you know, doing some kind of three-card Monty with the, you know, with the cups and the bean on the table on the side of 42nd Street. And it, no, these are, yes, so forgive me. So design assist. Design assist is where you will bring a, we call them trade partners, right? Mechanical installer, not a mechanical engineer, but mechanical installer or sales or sales rep for a particular piece of equipment. Um, so I learned this in high rise construction. If we're going to do a building that's 90% glass exterior, then why do we wait to the end of the job to talk to the glass company, right? That is one of the major systems in the building. And if it can be, the customer shouldn't have to pay for that over and over and over again, which means that typically architects will draw the glazing system of, of a high rise without ever talking to the installer. And then they'll hand it out with shop drawings. So shop drawings are when the installer interprets the design drawings and they adapt them to their own technology. So you could imagine that in, 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 in mechanical systems, you can imagine that in, uh, in glazing systems for buildings. And if you have a well-meaning, but not necessarily 100% technical architect who has a great design vision, they're going to draw this incredible looking building that no one quite yet knows how to build. And so then the engineer will take it and, they'll st- and, and the contractor will take the drawings and they'll start to value engineer it and they'll start to redraw it. That's the second time now the customer's paid for it to be redrawn. And then they'll hand it off to what we call a trade partner, like a glazing installer, right? There's massive glazing installers in every big city. And they'll draw it a third time. And that cost of drawing that system will be absorbed again in the cost of installing it. So the customer's paid for it three times. So one of the brilliance 
when you have a one of the why design assist is really a great system is when you have a tight schedule when you cannot wait right and all of us in cannabis know that that's pretty much every job and you have a major system in the building like the mechanical system or the let's just stick with mechanical system right and you're saying okay should this be a air primarily air system with duct work or should this be a chilled water system with piping right and so one of the initial questions might be okay what's the cost of those trades is ductwork cheaper than pipe fitters, right? What's the long-term ROI on this system versus that system? And in many cases, we find the right answer. Sometimes it's it's uh, it's direct exchange, electrical fired direct exchange, rooftop units. And if the lead times are very long, we say, okay, who are we going to bring in? You know, is it going to be Zero Cool? Uh, is it Rex Mustang from Zero Cool? Is it Rupp Air? Is it, is it our friend uh, at, uh, at Desert Air? Um, and if you bring them into the design table, you find all kinds of opportunities that you never knew existed because they're the manufacturer of that piece of equipment and they can lend. So I learned, so how does Anderson Porter, how did Brian Anderson learn about this industry? Through not only the engineers and the owners, but also the tradespeople who need to install these things. And they look at me crazy, like, you wanted me to do that? Like, how about I do it this way? It's like, oh, wow, that's brilliant. I never would have thought of that. And now suddenly we saved time. We saved time in construction and we save time that the owner has to pay for ultimately in the drawings, mm. right? So design assist, that's a long-winded answer, but that's design assist, where you bring tradespeople, the trade partners in early. Okay. Design build is, I'm doing this in New York now. New York has procured all of their construction services for the, for the DAT, for the uh, social equity program for the retail stores in the state of New York. Design build is the methodology that they've, is the procurement method, the, how they're getting these jobs done. Design build jobs are led by the contractor and the architect as a pair. And typically, classically, it's a single price. It's like a turnkey. Think of turnkey. If somebody wants a facility built turnkey, that's typically design build. The contractor and the architect and the engineers are all a package. It's not like you select each one individually. You don't, you know, you'll write down your program and that's what they'll build. And they'll give you one price and they'll do it for that price. The, the United States government procures all of its services design build. Interesting. That's often why things suck too at the US government when they, when they <laughs> because they bought it design build. And that team, they didn't know what to price. They didn't know what their risk was. Right, right. And so they push, so the government pushes all the risk onto the design build contractor. Well, how do you handle risk? You raise your price. Yep. Okay. So maybe design build's not the right system for cannabis, right? Um, design bid build has some, is where you hire an architect, and you produce the drawings and you push them out to bid and, and engineers, architects and engineers, you hire designers who design it. And then you bid, you send the drawings on the street is the sort of colloquialism, put the drawings on the street. And then you get pricing back and you select the price, you select or you redesign because the prices are all too high and then you build. So design, bid, build. Another way that I learned that isn't either one of those two is through the Lean Construction Institute. Integrated project delivery is another method. It's a hybrid of those two. Yeah. And that's where design bid, that's where design assist comes from. It comes from my work through the lean, through thinking lean and saying, 
well, there's there's some advantages in design design build where the architect, the engineer, and the and the builder are all partners. But there's some advantages to open book where you would offer the customer the benefit of going to bid. Let's say painting. Okay, who 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 cares about the painting number, right? It's <laughs> right? Uh, let's get three bids on painting and let's pass that through to the customer because we don't care. We can get a cheaper, if we can save 10 grand on the painting number, let's save 10 grand, right? You can't go 15% over on every line item. You only want to go 15% on right? So yeah. we, I mean, a lot of this is really, this podcast is really becoming technical. I'm, I hope your listeners are enjoying it. That was it. the plan. <laughs> baseball. This is inside baseball on how the process of procuring buildings works and how much it matters for the developer, right? The cannabis entity yeah. who's, who's playing developer, looking at this scary task of building a $16 million facility. And how do you know that you're not getting fleeced? How do you know you're not getting hosed? Right. The term um, cannabis tax, I don't see it. I think that was an invention, a term coined when you know we were in the sort of primordial amoeba state, climbing out of the water and learning to walk, as as as, yeah. as the light industry coming into the into the into the light of day, thought that everything was so damned expensive, and this must be the cannabis tax. Now, admittedly, there's times when landlords have jacked their prices when they learned what the entity was going to do. That sure. blatantly is the cannabis tax. There, I'm sure there have been mechanical contractors who have slapped a green marijuana leaf oh, for on sure. and charged a little bit more for it. So I'm not denying that this is a thing as a cannabis tax, but truly in professional services, right? If you investigate what your engineer is charging and how much time they're spending, you're getting what you pay for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I hear these terms kind of thrown around by some of my clients, not, not every client, you know, knows these terminologies, but you know, I, I would say design build is the term that I hear the most frequent. And the reason people say that they want design build is because what, what they've heard about it or the positive that, that they hear is that they have one person to point the finger at. One yep. throat stroke. One throat exactly, to exactly. So when everything, you know, the shit hits the fan, that's who they're going to go after. But that to me is such a pessimistic point of view. Like you're already thinking about the system failing and you yes. want to be able to sue or point your finger at that at that company or that organization. Like that sucks, right? right. Um, and definitely I would say the more savvy clients that we work with are more on the design bid build. They, they come from construction. They come yep. from development. They've been part of like the, the building process before and they see the value of having specialty engineers and consultants and design professionals um, and then bid that out. And, you know, we kind of live in a space in between all of that a lot of times because a lot of times we're hired to do calculations, pick very specific equipment for, yep. say, the grow rooms. But we don't need to touch office spaces and admin. I mean, we can definitely design that and we do design that, but that's not necessarily, you know, the value that you're getting from us, um, our value proposition. Um, right. And so, you know, sometimes our clients work with a design bid contractor and and then it comes to light like, oh, but, you know, Dr. Greenhouse is specifying all the HVAC equipment that means we can't do what we normally do. And those contractors don't always like that. 
right? Because then they can't make a buck on cheap HVAC equipment. And I'm sure that's true for all sorts of trades. That's not just a mechanical thing. It's just that we have that, that specialization. And usually our clients are like, well, whatever, we're going to trust what Dr. Greenhouse has been doing, right? We've been working with them for six months. So go make your money on the glazing system or, or the paint, right? Or something else. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, It's all about, so to, to answer that or to, to follow up on that, it's about risk management, right? As professionals, yeah, yeah. the reason you pay an engineer money is so that that engineer takes on risk off of your plate mm-hmm. and puts it onto hers. That is fundamentally the exchange of money for risk. Same reason people hire an architect. You pay, you pay me money so that I take risk off of your plate and I take liability for that. Builder, same thing. So if the amount of risk allocated to the professional is proper, balances to the fee. Okay. These are things that the owner now, like think of the hundred million things a developer has to do. Suddenly they've got to build their team. They've got to hire staff. They've got to think of SOPs. Many, many of my customers need a whole nother trade, which is called OPM, owner's project manager. Many folks take on the task of developing a new asset, building out real estate, and their bandwidth runs thin. Many times their, their C-suite is small and they haven't built hired their key staff yet. And so one group, again, if they have cannabis experience, it's a super strong addition to the team, which is an OPM. Somebody from the owner's side as a project manager who can sit in those, those OAC meetings, again, some terminology, owner, architect, contractor. We have those meetings every week. You know, totally do you have to, in every one of those meetings, sometimes that is just mind numbing for an owner who's got a thousand other things to do. Yep. I would have, I would have folks think about that. Now we do project and program management as part of our service, but on a small, small fraction of the jobs that we do, it consumes a lot of our bandwidth. So we're happy when either the owner comes forward with project management experience mm-hmm. or they bring a owner's project manager in as part of their team and yep. that helps that helps enormously 100 um, agree because also then we're more transparent in what we're doing right because then one we have these regular meetings so we're always making progress and we always have these milestones that's always great but also then the owner that owner's representative that owner's project manager knows what we're doing, right? Yeah. And they, they understand where the, the challenges come up or they understand what the progresses we're making or they understand that we're missing a team member and need to bring them on or, you know, like whatever it is. And then they can convey that to the owner or whoever is investing in that facility to help them understand why the timeline is lagging, why, you know, we're not making the progress or why something, the cost is going to increase over here, why they need to change the design over there. Um, and, and it just smooths the entire process overall. A hundred percent agree with what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, integrated project, man, integrated project delivery, IPD, integrated mm-hmm. project delivery that earlier was this hybrid between design build and design bid build. And in true, in well-oiled, well-functioning integrated project delivery jobs, there is no owner's project manager. And that is because the owner has identified a core team member who is senior enough in the ownership group to have authority and have the power of the check. If that person yeah. can commit the time 
And the architect commits the time to be, you know, which we always do every meeting and the contractor commits the time and the resources to be in every OAC meeting every week. That is a core team. And that team, if well represented and supported with ownership, it functions ideally. It just as well as having an OPM, an owner's project manager play mm -hmm. that role. Yeah. Um, because when the ownership can play that role and they have the power of the checkbook and they have the decision-making power, uh, we can, we can make decisions rapidly. Yeah. rapidly. yeah. And speed to market is key. Okay. So now I want to ask the line of questions I was thinking of, um, before we okay. went on project delivery methodologies, yeah. but I'm glad we went into that technical side because defining those terms, I think is really in, important for, everyone listening, when we throw those out there or when you, the client, the owner, you know, um, are trying to decide what, which strategy or which approach you're going to take to develop your project. We're all on the same page in terms of, of that terminology. Uh, so uh, the other question I wanted to ask you, I mean, all this experience you had before cannabis and now you're in cannabis, what strikes you as, oh, super unique and different about cannabis. Like, and, and also I, you've talked a little bit about what you brought from your previous experience to cannabis, yeah. but what really surprised you about the cannabis industry that you weren't expecting? Huh? First, you know, first off figuring out having the adjusting my radar, right? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Who's a criminal and who's not. Oh, interesting. Oh yeah. So, so you know the term silos, right? And so yeah. if my customer puts me in a silo and doesn't invite me to talk to the other person over there and the other person over there says, no, then I, I have a low lower interest of getting involved with that customer. Doesn't mean that they're a criminal. It just means that that is behavior that was learned in the legacy market, right? You keep each group in a silo because the more any one person knows about your business, the more likely you are to fail or get or get called out by the cops. And so that was something that I needed to learn early. That, that was, I forced to learn that early. Interesting. I say criminal, I mean, that's that's salacious. We were all criminals when we grew in the legacy market, right? So yeah, well, that's true, yeah. Is not a, is not a, I don't, shouldn't you, I shouldn't actually use the term, but it gets the point across, is yeah. that we need to break those barriers and we need to break down silos. So that was something interesting to me. The other was sort of learning to speak stoner, right? So, right, early in 2014, my God, everybody brought somebody from California or Humboldt, California or from Colorado as their grow consultants, right? It was like, oh, you know, what do you, what's your room design? They look around, wow, I could grow in this room right here. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grow in this room. I mean, body. you could, but yeah, should you? <laughs> Right. So it's, I guess I had this unique, what, it, what really surprised me and captured my attention was that sort of, I'm working with folks who have no idea what I do and mm -hmm. don't have preconceived ideas about what I do. And it's my job uh, to win or lose. I think if I, if I lose this customer, it's because I didn't talk at their language. I didn't speak their language. That's what I mean. I learned to speak stoner, right? I had to learn to speak the language of my customer and really embrace them. Mm. Show them that I'm not here to displace them. 
I'm not here as an architect to, 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 you know, this isn't like the robot taking over our jobs. This is like, you know, it's not like saying, oh, if you're, if you're, if your development team hires an architect, you don't need the legacy grower anymore. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that maybe we can provide, we can definitely provide education through standards and through best practices for every legacy grower out there. Right. And it's hard. Right. To say, well, I always grow on wooden benches. Well, you know, wood is a mold host. Right. So maybe we don't want to do that. Oh, well, those, you know, those Connolly benches or those GGS benches are really expensive. Right. Right. It's it's and you're you can sort of see this thought process happening of, oh, if I don't if I don't grow on the floor, you know, maybe and because you're in production now and you've got staff and you don't want people to be out with back injuries. Let's grow on a table. Right. Not just on the floor. And let's not yeah. use wood and yeah. oh, let's not use drywall and, and wood studs to build the room. A lot right? of growers learn that one the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give an example of a good facility design and a bad facility design? Like maybe just layout even, or you pick which element. So facility design. So let's talk, I don't know. I mean, greenhouse, indoor Let's grow. just talk indoor. indoor. Indoor cannabis facility. And you have some flower rooms and some bedrooms and mother rooms and some front of house areas and dry room and, you know, staging areas. Like, what do you, like, if you looked at somebody else's plan, what do yeah. you would be like, oh, this is a good layout or this is a good design versus, yeah. oh, my God, like, I hope that, you know, they, they need to work on this a little bit. There are some real telltales. I'll tell you right up front. There are some obvious telltales. One of them is corridor width. Yes. If I see somebody with six foot, six and a half foot corridors where the doors on one side hit the doors coming out the other side, I know they're not open at the same time, but the architect always has to draw them open. And if I see those doors hitting, I can tell you that they've probably overestimated the amount of room size for canopy reasons and underestimated the non-productive areas, i.e. corridors. Oh, you don't make money on the corridor. We make money on the grow room. So let's build the grow room as big as we can. That's one reason, uh, one flag that goes up. Another is vertical racking that doesn't have any clearance between the racks and the walls. As though no one needs to walk down between the rack and the wall. You never need to clean this room. No, you do. And that's another telltale. All of these lead to the same sort of fundamental, which is an overestimation of canopy and an underestimation of the human worker that needs to do work in these spaces. Mm -hmm. And I hear over and over from really talented growers working in crappy facilities that they lose staff all the time. They can't keep staff if there's not enough space to do work. So I start looking for... Oh, did they, at one point, did they, were they able to widen the hallway? And there's your niche for all your carts, right? So they're not just sitting in the middle of the hallway when you walk down. Oh, there's a niche on the side and all the carts go in there. Do they have storage? So there's yes. little telltales that I start to look for. Um, one that I learned, you know, from hort process engineers is the term horticulture wet bench. It's just a room with a three bin sink and some stainless steel tables. It's like a potting, it's like a potting room. Yeah, the head house, basically, so, like a greenhouse would be. Yeah, yeah, it's the greenhouse it's head a stage, house. I call it the staging, staging area. Staging yeah. area, perfect, right? And maybe it's got a floor sink so you can actually wash big things. Just, mm -hmm. yeah, shit flies everywhere. So it's got four walls and a door so it doesn't go out in the corridor. Um, you know, little details like that. And if they're missing, 
they start to add up in your head, right? And you, yeah. as I scan a set of plans, if I do this, you know, I do plan checks for for other for other customers, right? When they've had an architect design it, uh, they call me in sometimes to do a plan check. It's peer review, same in yep. engineering, right? Yep. Uh, you know, not a structural engineer on earth who's put up a high rise in Manhattan that didn't have another engineer look at it for peer Smart. review. <laughs> um, right. So peer review is, is, and though when I'm doing that, I, those are the things I look for. I look for these little, it's, it's not, did they get the benching right? Or, you know, is the wall thickness, right? Those can, those are other details that I can look at, but the front of house, like, do they have a, do they have an office for the lead grower? Yeah. Do they, did they do, so GMP is a big deal today. So good manufacturing practices for those who don't know what GMP means or CGMP, current good manufacturing practices, New Jersey, absolute must, New York, absolute must, Connecticut, absolute requirements in the law that you have to conform with GMP. Well, gee, what does that mean? Do you have sinks in your gowning room so that you can wash your hands before you go out onto the floor? Do you have room to, for a, um, for the equipment to put on your booties and to put on the latex gloves, the PPE, the personal uh, protection equipment. Um, the, you know, these are all little telltales that say this facility is going to work or it's not going to work. Um, record storage, people that, you know, they're looking for canopy square feet. They didn't have any physical room in which they can store the SOPs. And you're never going to pass your yearly inspections if you can't produce those records, right? So there's these, details that are buried deep in the in the in the law that if you don't read through the entire regulation you'll miss them and yeah if if a you know if a hydroponics store salesperson designs your facility you're going to see it's got a lot of canopy area but probably not much of anything else i yep i tend to um call that space utilization but yes. everything you just described i 100% agree with um and i've never talked to a grower who complained they had too much space to work in, <laughs> right? right? Whether it's the irrigation room, right? Or whether it's a hallway or whether it's storage or the staging area or even the grow room. You know, I mean, a lot of people, container farms are uh, definitely interesting and a curiosity. And there have been some container, you know, some successful container farm companies and installations, but not as many as you would think. Um, and one of the big reasons for that is that people don't have space to work and they're uncomfortable right. in there. And so like you were saying earlier, like the turnover in a container farm um, of, of people who are working in that space is, is enormous because you, you can't have more than one person working in there comfortably. And the one person who is has three feet of space to fit their body in and slide in sideways, you know, and try to reach for plants and pull out racks that are, you know, four feet wide, but you have a three foot aisle, that's an impossibility. And so, yeah, when I, when I look at plans and if I see, you know, eight foot corridors, I'm like, yes, like you're going to have, you're going to be able to put your rolling carts in that space and still have people walk by. That's right. Yeah. I'll give you another example. Um, I work a lot with Mike Zartarian, you know, Mike, and yep. we come up with a term called a farm unit. So if you look at a plan of, of an operation that has thousands of square feet, right? And you get these long quarters and you get, you know, nine grow rooms on a 10 grow rooms on a quarter, then another, another quarter with 10 grow rooms. Yeah. There's going to be a veg room interspersed in there, right? What we 
kind of worked out and have implemented now very successfully is this idea of a farm unit. It's got the, if you're, if you're growing from clone, clone moms and clones and veg to flower, if that's your operation, there's another, you can design the unit differently if you're growing from tissue culture is why I prefaced this. Um, not everybody grows the same way. So I just want to say that there's different ways to design a farm unit, but if you're growing from whatever your initial hort introduction is, whether it's seeds, you know, germinating seeds or whether it's bringing in uh, tissue. But if you're going from mom to clone, to veg, to flower, keeping that as a distinct unit separate from the next, building multiple mom rooms across the, the, the space means less steps in that process. Right? If you've got to walk all the way, you know, 400 feet down the corridor to get your veg plants all the way to the flower room nine that's down the end of the corridor, that's an inefficient, very inefficient. So farm unit is one thing I also look for. Is there an efficiency? I guess what I'm saying is, is the efficiency of space being correctly laid out so that the worker, if you think through the process, 67 days, whatever your growth cycle is, right? And then when harvest comes, where's the harvest? And is it near to the green waste, right? So you can get used plant matter to the, you know, to a secure area well enough um, on the post-harvest, right? And how does all the post-harvest work? Is it lined up in a sequential manner? Are the rooms next to each other that need to be? Or on the intake, is there a quarantine room mm. next to your your shipping, your, your receiving bag? Prior to COVID, we had a hundred different, well, three or four different answers on what quarantine meant yeah. and, what it, and what it did. Today, we all kind of remember wiping our groceries or thinking that COVID might stick to cardboard. So in cannabis, a quarantine room should be adjacent and should be a through room from every receiving bag so that you don't just take infested or infected or, you know, oh, heaven forbid you take a wood pallet into a grow room. Like, don't ever do that, right? Don't ever take the stuff that is associated with the truck and shipping into your facility, right? So you need these kinds of physical barricades, physical barriers. This, a lot of this comes from GMP as well, right? Is yeah. looking at biological contamination, microbiological, chemical, and physical contamination. And what are the methods that those, what are the transport methods by which those contaminants could enter your flower room? Yeah. And if you minimize those, through space, through architecture, right? Through doors and walls and proper sequencing, then you've built a, a robust plan. So when I, that's what I look for if I look at, look at plans. I love how much you think about flow and directionality and connectivity and um, adjacency, right? I mean, all of that is it's so important in terms of, of risk management. Um, in terms of even operational efficiency, I mean, they, it, it's, it's interesting how if, if you're trying to manage risk, a lot of times that helps with managing labor efficiency. And if you do things to manage labor efficiency, a lot of times that helps with risk management, right? Like they go hand in hand so frequently. I, I mean, very rarely are they in conflict with each other. I don't know. If you and I haven't spent a lot of time talking about greenhouses, but one of them blew my my head open was the application of sort of Dutch style mobile racking, where the bench moves to the employee, the employee oh, does yeah. not move to the bench. And in large scale greenhouse, um, great guy that I work with, Tom Halfley, uh, I toured a facility that he's done and we've designed now a couple of facilities using this method. 
from a CapEx OpEx, this is a massive capital expenditure, but it reduces your operational expenses massively. So it's basically robotics, right? And moving mobile benching. And for, I'm looking at it in New York for rural farmers who do not have access to hundreds of people to come and work. There's just not access to that skilled labor set. Then an investment in equipment can be a benefit. So growing in a sealed greenhouse, right? With mechanical systems controlling your interior environments and a mechanical bench benching system that moves the plant around the facility, reducing the labor count um, is where um, I see the future of, of production yeah, at greenhouse yeah. level. Move plants to the people as opposed to people to the plants. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Lo load in on one end and harvest on the other end. I mean, and it's, your, yeah. And your space utilization shoots up to 80 to 85%. So if you think about uh, like a, you know, building less greenhouse per canopy area, your highest ratio is going to be an automated benching. Right? Mm -hmm. If you're growing in raised beds, right, where nothing moves, right, a right. raised bed greenhouse is maybe 50% efficient. 50% of that, think of a hoop, think of a high tunnel or a hoop house. The canopy inside is usually a raised bed or a planted right in the ground, yeah. and you're barely at 50% of the, of, the, of, the, of the area, but you can get up to 85% utilization when you go with, it, with the automated benching system. Yeah. So there's real massive efficiencies. So, okay, so we talked about operational efficiency. Um, what do you think about in terms of resource efficiency and not, not labor as a resource, but energy and water? Where do you think are some of the biggest opportunities uh, or even materials? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing a lot more um, from, from my architect friends about decarbonization and building materials. Um, sure. Is that gonna come to, to cannabis? That's a, okay, a lot. I don't know. I, I just asked a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, I'll start with, I mean, I'll start with a, a real, an easy one because it bridges to the last conversation, which is operational. Okay. I wish indoor growers would absolutely do a 12 hour on, 12 hour off, alternating cycles mm. if they have two grow rooms because you will reduce your energy load by half. You do not have to have your lights on in both rooms for the same photo period, you can alternate them. So if you've got eight rooms, you do four and four, alternate 12 hour cycles. It will decrease your energy consumption by half. Not to mention your power demand by half, and power demand. which and will power reduce your energy bill. That's all of that, right? Yeah. So that's one. Um, there's a hot debate between, you know, DX and, and chilled water in terms of how, you know, efficiency and, and tunability, right? Um, then, so energy efficiency, um, air tightness, right? You want to have tight control over your interior grow environment. So, yeah. so, and this goes to really like a hawk supervising with the contractor, the sub trades. So they don't drill oversized holes to run conduit through, and then they don't fill them back in. Um, amazing stories in there where you're losing energy efficiency through invisible holes in your room and you can't get anything tuned because it just, you can't keep the air pressure correct. Um, so you asked about building materials. Well, that's what I think of when I think of building materials. I'm thinking about plant health, right? I'm not just thinking about, so if I, as an architect, didn't put 
any kind of foam in a building for the rest of my life, I'd be happy because foam is all petrochemical, non-renewable, right? And every insulated mantle panel is filled with foam, right? So I'm not doing the planet a great service by consuming more petrochemical foam filled mm. products, right? That doesn't make me happy, right? But I'm not going to start using wood again because that ain't going to work for my customer. <laughs> right. So I make, you know, I'm, I'm putting, I'm compartmentalizing and I'm saying what's good for the project, what's good for the plant. Um, and then energy, we just wrote a white paper. Uh, this Mike, who I mentioned, Mike Zotera and Jim Megerson, I wrote a white paper for the state of Illinois talking about the differences of mechanical systems uh, because they wrote into their law that, that people should be using. So um, that's the wrong system. Let's wrong just say system. that. <laughs> uh, so Molly Graham at MEEA is going to be pushing that into the legislature at the state Good. of Illinois. Thank uh, you. We got that news. Thank Molly and the and the Midwest Energy Efficiency Alliance. Real happy about that. That's getting pushed up to the legislative level. Um, what else? Um, so energy efficiency, resource efficiency. Um, yeah, building tightness. The envelope. It's not just a rain jacket that goes over your head. It actually also needs to be airtight, and rodent tight, and insect tight. Right. As and all of those things to keep all of those predators and 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 bad things out. Um, um, from my friends who do GMP, good manufacturing practices, that starts at the curb cut. It doesn't just start at the extraction room. So you need to think about, you know, keeping standing water off of your property uh, because it breeds mosquitoes. You need to think about where do you place the dumpster mm. relative to the to the intake door. You know, is the wind? Where's the prevailing winds? Are they blowing flies and you know out of your dumpster right back into your facility when you open up the the loading oh, door, God. right? Because you don't have one of those food safe skirts that comes out and grabs the back of the truck. So as soon as you open up that door, just, you know, junk yep. starts flowing into your facility. That's real. And that junk, those insects, that dust, that pollen, the spray from the soybean farmer next door is just going to migrate right into your facility if you don't have a proper design. And if you didn't think about that when choosing which side of the building to put your loading bay on. So yeah, there's, there's, environmentally, there's a lot of ways to look at a growth facility from an arch as an architect. There's a lot of different angles. What are your thoughts on air pressurization and, and positive versus negative pressure rooms? This goes back to my time in, in medical device manufacturing. So cascading airflows in, in ISO 7, ISO 8 mm -hmm. clean rooms. A lot of jargon there. But so positive air pressure means pushing more air into the room through a filtered out, outdoor air system to create positive. So, and this is also GMP. This is a GMP standard. So cascading airflows, cascading like water cascades down. Air can cascade just like water and it, from a high pressure down to a neutral pressure, down to a negative pressure. And so I present as for my customers many times at the planning board. And I'm up, I'm their line of defense between the, the, the pitchforks and torches of the neighbors saying, this is going to smell. Okay. And I walk them through what cascading airflows means in the space. I walk them through how a recirculating HVAC does not dump air into the night sky. It's not going to dump air onto your 4th of July barbecue. It is not. All that air cascades down 
and we have one point of, e of ex exhaust through the building, because we have a building management system, we have one exhaust system, and we have a three-part carbon and, um, what is the third part? Carbon filtration, help me out, Nadia, you're the, you're the mechanical designer. What's a three-part uh, 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 filter for exiting air? One of them is perfume, right? There's this, there's this aerosol. You can do an aerosol spray, so yep. Um, carbon we, filter. Right, some people are using um, ozonation, UV or ionization to yeah. break up those VOCs as they're exiting the building. Right. Yep, and, and then carbon filters. And yeah, I mean, I think what you just arrived is exactly the type of design that we like to see and that we design is that cascading flow. Um, you know, and and just like you said, if, if, if we've done everything else right and we've sealed this building, we've sealed these grow rooms, then pushing air into the grow room, and that is what we would consider the clean room. That's right. Right. Um, and so we're, we're giving it that filtered air from the outside, pressurizing it is that we shouldn't be pushing air out of that room and into the ambient environment and community because we've sealed that room and that building. So now the air gets to go into another part of the building. It goes where we want it to go, right? It exactly. It goes where we want it to go. And then ultimately we know that we can't just keep pressurizing the building. It would blow up like a balloon. So right. we design. We extract it from one point. And yeah. as we extract it, we can tell the neighbors and we can tell the planning board director and we can tell those pitchforks and, and, and torches that we're doing our due diligence to protect their 4th of July barbecue. We're not going to be just dumping I mean, I would, I like the smell, but not everybody apparently does. Right. right? Um, well, so if they're we at a 4th of July barbecue, probably one of their neighbors or friends is probably smoking they a joint anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I try to tell people. That's the smell they're smelling. <laughs> That's when the playing board starts to chuckle and laugh. And, oh, okay. I see where you're coming from. Uh, on a kind of a different topic, uh, not so lighthearted. I mean, we were talking ahead of this, how the industry has slowed down in the last six months or, or so, maybe nine months. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on maybe why you think that's happening or or more importantly, the, the, the why that's happening. I think we know a lot of the why that's happening. But what are kind of your hopes for this downtime? Right. Like, what do you think is going to emerge on the other side of this downtime or hoping will emerge? So, uh, you know, I saw it yesterday on the uh, MJ Biz Daily. They pushed out this article that said, gee, could talking to your customers prove a good business for cannabis industry? Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the cannabis industry will become a consumer products goods industry. It is mm. already. A consumer products goods industry. So what could we be doing? What could developers and entrepreneurs be doing? Polling their customers. What do you want? Poll your customers. Um, that will help to refine the why we're in this industry. S figure out your why. Figure yeah. out why are you growing cannabis? What does your customer want? Are you growing it because it's cool? Because this is the weed you want to smoke? Or is this the weed that the soccer moms who are going to be buying from you or the, you know, the 60 to 85 year old crowd are really consuming. Do they, is, is it yeah. the same? Why? I think, I think a lot of that kind of soul searching and then zeroing in on doing one thing. What I saw pre COVID from 2014 on even up through 21 
was people just getting into the market as big as they could be or as as generic as they could be without focusing on the one the thing that they really did well do one thing well i think vertical integration is great if you have the financing to do it if you've got the money to do it but if you don't have the money to be a fully vertically integrated group do one thing well take a smaller bite at the apple don't try to do 100,000 square feet of anything do 20,000 square feet is great or 10,000 square feet is awesome because you can be more consistent and more reliable and bring exactly that thing to market. Look at the examples of Oregon and Washington, right? Look at the price drop that happened in 2018. We just went through the same thing. I say we here in Massachusetts. Massachusetts went through an astronomically dramatic drop in the market and people are pulling out now. TrueLeave is abandoning very large facility that they just built out in Holyoke, Massachusetts, walking away from it. Is it because Take the market's not there? Yes. Or there's not enough retail stores, but the demand is there? Like what's happening? Massachusetts is a big state. We're 6.75 million people, but Florida- But with a, with a lot of schools. And there's a lot of students who want to smoke weed, right? <laughs> a lot of students. And yet Florida's got 29 million people is that right? 29 million? Or is that that's California? What's We're 35 million. You're 35. We're 20, yeah. 25, 25 to 29 million is Florida, right? And there's a lot of geriatrics who smoke weed. And all the parents of those college kids in Massachusetts, they're all down in Florida in the winter. And so I think they're retrenching, regrouping, and focusing on that future market, um, hmm. probably smart business. What the dramatic drop in price here, I think, and this and this slowdown of this past six to nine months, you're accurate in that, is that people should just retrench and look at what happened in similar markets. Look at that Washington, Oregon market. If you can do a small thing, do it well and do it consistently, you'll make money. There's still going to be people who will pay premium dollar for really, really good, well-grown, consistent cannabis uh, and for making products that fill a specific need. You know, I consume based mostly on medical stuff, I, you know, sleep and aches and pains. And there's some great products out there. There's some wonderful formulators who are formulating just phenomenal blends of THC, CBD, CBDG, you know, multiple cannabinoids and really putting those into formulations. And again, consumer product goods, find out what your customer really wants, focus on it and deliver that. I think you can do that in a small, cost-effective and profitable way. Where does that come from, Brian, um, focusing on the consumer or the customer? Is that something that, that you help owner-operators uh, work through? Or are there other consultants that help them work through that? Or, or is it usually self-driven? I try to have that conversation early because that's where programming, that's the, that mm. my interest in that is fundamentally because every facility should be custom designed. There isn't a generic facility design. And the custom goes to what is it, what's your why, customer? Yeah. A, coming to for a new facility design, hiring, you know, Dr. Greenhouse and hiring in a supported design. What is your why? Why are you growing? What's, okay, is this the right strain to do that? Uh, is this the right grow environment to do that? Should we you know, how do we tune and how do we perfectly fit your facility to do that thing? And that's been hard to do 
in the past since I've been at this since 2014 because people don't know. They simply do not know. And they're coming to this business opportunistically. And they're saying, just do what you did the last time. Didn't you do this before? Isn't that why I hired you? You've done this before? Just do what you did the last time. Yeah, yeah. Frustrating. That's a frustrating position to be in. I, I want the customer to take ownership of their role. Why are they doing this? What is, is it just to make money? Okay, then yes, I can do, I can do better than the last time I did it, right? I'm going to do continuous improvement. I'm going to do even better facility. Does it meet your needs? Well, you didn't give me any needs. So we're just going to make it a kick-ass facility. Um, but if you can come to me with, with, with a specific, so in, 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 in Mississippi, I love this story, Southern crop, we just did a ribbon cutting of 81,000 square feet in Mississippi, only 3 million people in Mississippi. And yet they have the highest opioid addiction per capita in the United States. And what is it? Pain medication is the, what presents the doctors have opioids to give to that. Now Southern crop is building a gel cap production manufacturing facility within their cultivation license as well. And they're bringing pain medications to the physicians groups in Mississippi to prescribe for pain. So it literally is an off ramp for opioids. That is a why that I can get behind, right? And they're hitting now, they're pulling down a hundred grams a square foot where we designed this for, you know, 50 to 60 was the pro forma. They're pulling down a hundred grams per square foot uh, on two tiers in a, in an indoor grow facility. And I'm real proud of that because it's it's mission driven and it's got a real ethical purpose to it. I love that we you know we grew up on the idea of cannabis. Well, at the time it was you know pot weed was yep. was a gateway drug right to bigger and badder drugs. But I love I love flipping the script on that and saying that cannabis is an off ramp. To opioids to those bigger, badder drugs. This is how we get off that. That is, that's beautiful. That's, that's how we need to be thinking about this, this plant. I love that. What advice do you have for other architects who are maybe just getting into this industry or interested in getting into cannabis facility design? Cause you can't do it all. We can't do it all. You know, it's always fun to talk to other design professionals who um, who understand the challenges and the intricacies about designing what we design. Um, so what advice do you have for, for other architects and designers? The, the more, the better. And lean forward, lean into this industry. Hmm. I had to learn to say we to get involved in this industry, right? I lost a 30-year banking relationship. Really? When my income exceeded 70% of my revenue was in cannabis, yeah. my bank of 30 years cut us off, said, you got 30 days to exit our bank. So I, and my customers experienced the same thing, right? This is a, this is a, and I'm a service provider. I don't touch the plant. Right. So I guess I'm, I'm pointing to an example that says you need to identify, you need, your customer needs to identify with you. You need to identify with the customer. Get involved in your customer's industry. I say this to architects. Get involved in the industry that your customer is involved in. Don't You can't stay on the outside and be aloof and deign to work with them. You can't just, oh, okay, I'll, I'll help you design. That is not a winning attitude. The customer wants to know that you're passionate about what they're passionate about. The customer wants to know that you've, you've, you know the difference between sensible and latent loads. That's, you know, that's something that architects should know. But in most 
disciplines, excuse me, in most verticals of industry, architects don't need to know that. They just don't. It never right. comes up. You can, you can pass that off to the engineer, pass off the liability. You don't care. You don't know. Don't ask, don't tell, whatever you whatever. <laughs> get involved in your customer's industry. Really get to know. Go to the, the expos or how I did it, going to going to cannabis expos. Uh, dip your toe in the water of that big bad world. Um, get to know your brethren. Really, you know, break bread with them, smoke weed with them, get to know your customers. Because if you don't and you don't have a passion for it, it'll show. Mm. It'll show. You know, you'll be another Chad practicing in the, you know, in the, in the weed world <laughs> and won't get the, the respect from the legacy folks that are really driving, they're the core and the heart of this, of this business, right? Uh, whether your legacy, just legacy straight up, or whether you're medical, part of the caregiving community, right? You're, yeah. you know, Mary Jane Rathburn, you know, baking brownies for the, you know, for AIDS patients in, in San Francisco, whatever your connection to the, to, to the plant Architect needs to figure that out because this is a plant-driven industry. It's not a, I don't want to say design-driven industry, but design in the way architects think of design. Architects mm. think of design as being published in magazines. Architects think of design as using a new material in a unique way. There's very few cannabis operators who care whether you've used a material in a unique way. It doesn't help their business. So understand the customer's business is what I tell and I think that's true for engineers, right? You, you need yeah. to know what's what's driving your, you know, you can specify any kind of system. But I tell people this all the time. I said, look, if you're Pfizer or Moderna, two fairly recognizable names now post-COVID, and you're going to build a new facility, you're not going to choose some shitty-ass building on the outskirts of Trenton to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not where, and there's a lot of big farm in New Jersey. I'm not dishing on New Jersey here. I'm just saying... Whatever the neighborhood, whatever the whatever you're doing, you're do, this is a drug manufacturing industry. We are in a consumer products goods, yes, but it's also a drug manufacturing. It's pharma level, and we should be designing materials, designing systems, uh, and and flows that work for that you know for that purpose. Okay, so last question, Brian, what do plants crave from architecture? Consistency. Hmm. Nice. Temperature consistency, airflow consistency. And I learned this from, you know, I learned this from growers. I learned this from hort process engineers. I learned this from, from engineers. Um, consistency. So same thing every day. Same thing every day. They don't want it different. They don't want wild temperature swings. They don't want wild pressure swings. They want consistency. And, and uh, Durs Peterson, you must know Durs now at, at PIP. Yeah. Said, put up this great slide a couple of years ago. Genetics plus environment equals phenotype. Mm. And I'm yeah, architect. It's true. That environment is my responsibility. And that's half of the equation of what growers are trying to do is to present the phenotype that the, the purple haze or the particular flower that their customer wants. And so half of that equation is the environment. And, and so a happy plant craves a consistent, reliable environment that's exactly the same every time. Your customer wants the same thing. They want to go to the store and get the same flower every week, every day, if, if, you know, to, make, to make the customer happy. But you know, whatever the limit is, 
they want this. They don't want to come back to the store and say, oh, we don't have it this week. So, you know, don't build odd number. Well, uh, that's not the right thing to say. Don't build different size grow rooms. Build every grow room mm. exactly the same size for consistency. I don't know the right answer. Should they be even numbered or odd numbered? Every, you know, there's different, <laughs> math, there's different math involved in that. Um, and that's what process engineering, but build it consistently. So uh, you're, so the plant is happy. Love it. Love it. So I have at the end, um, a few rapid fire questions for you. Um, they're meant to be quick responses. Uh, if you want to elaborate, you can. Um, so I've got a few here for you. You ready? Go for it. Let's go. All right. Are plants high tech or low tech? Both. Both. Okay. Do <laughs> you want me to elaborate? If you want to. Well, I mean, they're billions of years old, right? So that's fairly low tech. That's evolutionarily pretty low tech. They're fundamentally okay. trees, oak trees in my backyard are pretty low tech. But when you're growing them in a grow in enclosed environment, whether it's mixed light or warehouse, they the environment is very high tech to keep them going. So yeah, the plant itself, it's pretty low tech. Got it. What is one piece of advice you'd give to a new grower? Read. I like it. What has cannabis taught you? Passion. Awesome. What has controlled environment horticulture taught you? It's gotten me more involved as an architect holistically in what I do. Meaning, like I told you, designing office buildings, I can put, I don't have to talk about sensible to latent lows. Like I can just forget about that. The engineer is responsible. There's probably not much impact. You know, there's one of those vents above me and there's one of those vents above me. That one supplies the air. That one returns it. As long as I got those two vents, it's the engineer's problem, whether the customer's happy. Right. <laughs> and that was boring to me. That was absolutely boring to me. Mm. Cannabis has gotten me much more involved holistically in my career thinking about what the engineer does and to the extent that some engineers like brian you're more like an engineer than like an architect well i take that as pride because most architects delay the production schedule because they're fussing over some detail that they don't like you know that probably doesn't matter to the owner uh, i can throw my own profession out of the bus i went to art school and i went to you know graduate degree and we were taught to speak in a different language right not purposefully but implicitly, right? That that language would be unique amongst architects and that would build some sort of uniqueness of, of why we were uniquely qualified to do what we do. I have changed that language entirely. I don't even almost know how to speak that other language because now I speak the language of latent and sensible loads and airflow and, and, and air tightness. And it's, it, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy now we have plenty of opportunity and I'm going on. I gave you some really short answers <laughs> um, <laughs> because in retail, in retail, I get to exercise those and flex those design muscles. And that's a lot of fun. Okay. Retail is brand driven. And that's why we do retail because we're architects and we love that. We love the human centric lighting and, and specialty lighting and graphics and cool and pop and sparkle. That's just, it's a lot of fun. So we like retail. That's why we do retail. 
Uh, one of the reasons I'm grinning from ear to ear, I know our listeners can't see it, but um, I love that you said people have told you that you think more like an engineer than an architect, because I've had people tell me that I should have been an architect because I oh, think wow. like an architect. So no wonder we get along so well. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Uh, indica or sativa? Sativa. Um, tea, lager, or donut? Wow. Lager. All right. <laughs> I had to ask you a Boston question. <laughs> Lager. Lager. That's the right answer right there. <laughs> well, it's probably about time for you to go have some Lager. So um, anyway, thank you so much, Brian. That's that's the end of my questions. Uh, it was really fun to, to talk to you and geek out over architecture and building design, really. Phenomenal. Loved it. Thank you so much. Um, have a great evening. Yeah, you too. All right. Thanks, Brian. <laughs>